Connecticut Democrats or Connecticrats, as they have never been called. Welcome back to week eight and episode eight of Connecticrats, the CT Democrats podcast. I'm your host, Mike Cerulli. And I'm Dave Kostek with the Connecticut Democratic Party. And on this week's episode, I spoke with Congressman Joe Courtney. I sat down with Norm Needleman, a senator for the 33rd District. You know, I had to stop myself during my interview with Joe Courtney from nerding out on all the policy points we talked about. We covered health care, we covered defense spending, and we covered uh, education and higher ed. So this conversation is a great one. I love the topics. I love the enthusiasm. What'd you talk about with uh, Senator Needleman? I don't think we did any nerding out, although it was a technical <laughs> issue uh, talking about the Take Back Our Grid Act, which was the legislation that just passed to regulate Eversource and to some extent UI to regulate utilities in Connecticut uh, and, and pay much more attention to consumers and a lot less to shareholders. So uh, we had a good talk about that and we talked about campaigning in 2020. Awesome. So those two conversations coming up next on Connecticut's, the CT Democrats podcast. Congressman Joe Courtney, welcome to the podcast. Great to be here, Michael. Uh, thank you for the invitation. Yeah, thank you so much for being here. How are you today? I'm good. I mean, it's exciting time when you're less than a month away from an election. Uh, obviously, um, you know, events in Washington um, add a layer of uh, anxiety on top of that exciting mm-hmm. excitement, which, uh, I mean, there's there's a lot hanging right now in terms of just uh, trying to get a COVID relief bill through, and uh, which I'm, I'm sure we'll talk about this morning. Yeah. Why don't we why don't we start with that? Um, last night, the president uh, pulled his negotiators uh, away from the Hill. Uh, what does that mean for you as a congressman and for the American people? So, again, if you look back um, at the pandemic in the U.S., going back to uh, uh, March, uh, we actually made some pretty good progress in the Congress with uh, four bipartisan COVID relief bills uh, in succession. Uh, mm-hmm. Obviously, the big one was the CARES Act. Um, and again, the purpose behind that was that because the um, sort of external hit on the U.S. economy you know, was so sudden and required such uh, drastic public health measures uh, that you know, we really needed to keep the, the the country stable by getting you know really targeted critical help out there to certain sectors and again the chairman of the federal reserve board jerome powell you know was very clear about the fact that you know they're obviously pulling out all stops with monetary policy uh you know zero percent interest rates through 2023 which is just you know unheard of um, mm-hmm. in our economic history but you know the, also we needed to get um, assistance out to people in the form of cash payments Unemployment, um, you know, supplemental benefits, uh, support for uh, local government, particularly our school districts, uh, nutrition assistance. Uh, you know, we have big farm sector in eastern Connecticut. And again, we there was a very good um, farms price support program that was included mm-hmm. in the CARES Act. But that was back in March. You know, most of those funds have been depleted and long since gone. And we're clearly, you know, at least a half a year, probably nine months at a minimum in terms of mm-hmm. getting a vaccine that's going to get us on the other side of this. And um, and we need another shot of um, stimulus and fiscal relief. And again, uh, Chairman Powell, uh, just a couple of days ago, you know, adamantly made that point uh, to mm-hmm. Congress. We were making progress. Again, back in May, you know, certainly the House Democrats moved forward with the HEROES Act, uh, which again, touched on a lot of those key um, components that were in CARES. And um, 
uh, you know, Mitch McConnell completely dismissed it. You know, um, you know, we need to pause, let the states file bankruptcy. I mean, he actually really right. said that. And, um, uh, and um, you know, now, I mean, October 1st, the airline industry ran out of CARES Act money, and there's probably close to 100,000 layoffs that mm-hmm. um, are staring at us in the face right now. For the president on the heels of his own, you know, um, positive um, test for, for COVID and, you know, experiencing directly how, um, you know, extraordinary this illness is with three-day hospitalization, um, you know, for him to then pull the plug when, when you know, Chair, uh, Speaker Pelosi and the Secretary of the Treasury, Stephen Mnuchin, were making progress towards a deal, um, again, is a huge hit on the economy and the stock market reacted it exactly did, yeah. that way. And yeah. so, um, uh, you know, I'm going to be with some folks in Enfield tonight talking about really the school district's challenges mm-hmm. in terms of, uh, you know, accommodating students with, you know, virtual, hybrid, full-time, you know, all the equipment changes, mm-hmm. schedule changes, transportation, um, you know, this costs money. And, and uh, the HEROES Act that the Democrats passed in the House, um, you know, obviously included that. There was healthcare funding as well to strengthen, you know, buttress our hospitals, who again are still not operating in normal um, capacity, testing and tracing. You know, in Norwich, uh, we had a pretty scary 6% positivity rate uh, at the end of the last week. And, um, you know, the testing program uh, has now been moved to Dodd Stadium to try and accommodate the much mm. larger numbers that are starting. I mean, the, the good news is yesterday, the test numbers were in a more um, manageable level. But um, again, th- those were paid for by CARES and, and that money is going to be depleted soon. Um, so anyway, it's, um, you know, with this guy, you never know. He could, you know, change, you know, change on a dime and, and we may be back mm-hmm. uh, down there, um, you know, with a deal imminently. So the speaker is still there and she is still, you know, crunching the numbers and, and you know, totally uh, engaged in terms of talking to, to Mnuchin um, and hopefully uh, Trump will let Mnuchin, you know, uh, restart uh, the talks and the conversation to get this done. Mm-hmm. How does that work when, you know, the, obviously the speaker and her leadership team are, you know, leading the negotiations. Um, how does the word sort of get out to the to the members uh, like you and, and John Larson and Jim Himes who represent Connecticut right. uh, to say sort of like sound the horn of like, all right, guys, come back to Washington now? Um, well, again, she's been very good about um, organizing uh, conference caucus calls. Um, and there was one yesterday when and, and in fact, it was during the call that um, she got the uh, note slipped to her that the, that the White House had basically oh, wow. pulled the plug, which, um, uh, and again, just before that, she was reporting on, you know, the latest uh, exchange of, uh, you know, positions with, with Mnuchin. So, um, so anyway, I mean, that's really how she does it. I mean, there, there, you know, there, there's key committees that um, have buckets of the bill, um, you know, appropriations, ways and means, education and labor, which I sit on with uh, Congresswoman Hayes, Mm-hmm. Uh, energy and commerce. And so we have our own sort of um, avenues of, of uh, updates and information. Um, but, uh, you know, the fact that we, again, had four votes that passed the COVID bills before and almost unanimously, um, you know, shows that she's really done quite an extraordinary job of uh, keeping everybody together and marching forward. 
Yeah, yeah, we we all appreciate her leadership. Um, and I know you mentioned before we started recording that you know you've been speaking with you know union workers and small businesses and farmers. Um, from those conversations, do you feel that the need for more stimulus and more relief is is pretty serious at this point? Yes, I mean because again, there's certain sectors in the economy um, that have actually kind of been able to be stay pretty stable, um, but there's definitely others uh, that in the small business arena, you know, people who are in the hospitality restaurant sector, um, mm-hmm. you know, we've lost already um, far too many, um, you know, businesses uh, in Eastern Connecticut and many others are just hanging on, you know, by a uh, thread and, uh, you know, getting another round of the paycheck protection, uh, forgivable loans, which really kept the lights on in the spring and early summer is desperately needed uh, out there. Uh, again, the, um, you know, talking to folks who are sort of frontline workers, first responders, uh, healthcare workers, postal workers, you know, they obviously are very much at risk in terms of being exposed to the virus. So uh, mm-hmm. the, the HEROES Act, which really has a very robust um, replenishment of PPE, the protective equipment, um, and testing and tracing um, uh, kits and facilities. I mean, you know, that's how we get through this next period of time before a vaccine uh, is available. And, um, you know, talking to uh, hospitals, uh, the supply chain is tightening up again, you know, Mm -hmm. for the PPE. And we cannot go back to the situation where nurses are using the same masks for seven days and, you know, which was horrible, you know, back in Mm -hmm. in the spring. And, um, you know, again, given the president, you know, being a, a patient at a hospital, uh, it, it, you know, he, he should have at least some, you know, awareness and sensitivity to the fact that, you know, th- this, is, this is not um, bloated spending or, you know, pork or anything like that. This is critical stuff. Mm-hmm. For sure. Yeah. Hopefully he has a shift in perspective. Um, let's shift a bit, staying on COVID, but moving towards its effect on another industry. I know you mentioned briefly one that's very important to me, which is education. Uh, I'm a right. student at UConn. You represent uh, UConn, the largest and if I dare say best college in the state of Connecticut. Um, you're at UConn Law School oh, alumni. <laughs> yes, <laughs> for yeah, sure. Yeah. Um, you know, how has, you know, from your perch on the Health and Education and Labor Committee, um, particularly, I know you do work with a subcommittee on higher education and workforce right. development. Um, what do you see as the biggest changes coming to higher ed because of coronavirus? I mean, I know I'm, I'm seeing them firsthand. I just got off an online lecture, actually learning about the work of Congress in my political science course. Um, what do you see as sort of the outlook uh, for the next few years? Sure. So, um, you know, we have the committee has been meeting uh, remotely and hybrid and, you know, definitely um, getting input from, you know, various um, voices around the country in terms of, uh, uh, you know, the COVID impact on higher education. And it's been hard. I mean, you know, again, Mm -hmm. there's just been there's just no question that, um, you know, there's been a contraction in terms of, you know, students who are, in, are enrolled and uh, paying tuition and keeping the, you know, the, the lights on financially. So, uh, you know, one of the things the HEROES Act did was, uh, again, really to a much greater degree than CARES Act, was to provide, um, again, supplemental funding uh, that would be distributed, um, you know, uh, across the country. And obviously, schools like UConn would get a very healthy um, certainly. Boost in terms of that. Again, I was looking at the Board of Trustees sort of financial updates, and and um, the CARES Act did really keep uh, the second semester of last year uh, in one piece. Uh, but as you know better than anyone, you know your your you know 
already in a, um, you know, this very uh, expensive, uh, mm-hmm. unique environment that, um, that, you know, it's just not really sustainable for, for a longer period of time. So, I mean, to some degree, it really is just fundamentally about getting uh, resources uh, out there as well. The, um, you know, obviously there's been some adjustments made in terms of, you know, um, and this sort of happens in the sort of institution by institution basis, but just in terms of, uh, you know, grading and, you know, uh, you know, just sort of making sure people kind of don't fall behind as much, but, you know, it's, it's hopefully a very temporary um, situation as far as that goes. Uh, I was down at the Coast Guard Academy uh, not too long ago. Uh, again, they can't stop the process of getting uh, people through that institution because you right. know there's billets they need to fill mm-hmm. uh, in in the academy there. Mm-hmm. And um, so far, you know they've they've managed to adjust. They actually have their own on-campus testing, uh, where you know mm-hmm. it's the uh, school of chemical engineering actually set up their own testing apparatus uh, that's wow. there, but. Um, you know, look, there'll be some probably some really interesting uh, lessons learned and, and, you know, some benefit in terms of maybe efficiencies in terms of how to run uh, colleges. But, um, you know, the, 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 the main thing here is that, you know, we, and, and it also, frankly, is much even somewhat more acute at the K through 12 level. It's just that, you know, we don't want this to be sort of this, um, you know, dark period of kids falling behind and really getting, um, you know, hurt by, um, you know, being disconnected from a normal, um, you know, uh, school and matriculation uh, that Mm. clearly COVID has disrupted. And, um, uh, you know, as I said, I'm going to be up in with Enfield, uh, which is the biggest town in the district, uh, who uh, got some CARES Act money and were able to make some adjustments as far as, you know, the operations uh, that are there, but there's real disparity in terms of, um, you know, the digital divide. Some kids, mm-hmm. you know, just don't have the same access to, um, you know, the, the internet uh, and Wi-Fi that other kids do. And um, that's a real problem that, um, you know, we, we, we really need to address. Again, Heroes had some very robust funding for to address those um, issues as well. But, you know, I suspect next year the Educational Labor Committee is going to be doing oversight, uh, you know, across the board, you know, K through 12, early childhood and higher ed in terms of just mm-hmm. the COVID impact. And, and again, wh- what we need to do is just, as I said, just make sure that we're doing as much remediation for, for um, young people who may have, again, been sort of held back a little bit during this the intense portion of the, of the pandemic. I'll go over to Dave for his conversation with State Senator Norm Needleman. Senator Norm Needleman represents the 33rd Senate District in Connecticut's legislature. That's uh, 12 towns in eastern Connecticut from uh, Clinton and Old Saybrook down on the coast up to Portland, East Hampton and Colchester in the north. Uh, Senator Needleman, welcome to the podcast. 
How are you? Nice seeing you today, and thanks for doing this. You bet. Um, you just finished up the special session last week. Uh, the, the centerpiece, I would say, of that was legislation that you worked on with uh, Senator, or rather, Representative Arcanti uh, as the chairs of the Energy Committee. Take back our grid. Uh, give a quick overview of what that did and and how it evolved over the course of the summer, because I know you've been out there for quite a while um, saying that this is something we need to do. Well, yeah, and I appreciate you asking about it. It, it was um, a two, the, the storm hit on my birthday, but we were already in the middle of uh, dealing with thousands of complaints about the rate increase that happened um, at the end of July that people noticed at the end of July. And um, so we were beginning to feel the effects of um, how tone deaf um, uh, the utilities seemed to be at that point. Uh, but then the storm hit and the response was catastrophically bad um, to the point um, where everybody was upset, uh, more so with Eversource than with UI, but, um, but everybody was upset um, that uh, Eversource's communication with uh, town CEOs and the, um, and the uh, residents was uh, non-existent, uh, incorrect, um, inaccurate, you, you know, whatever you want to say. Um, it was just awful. And it appeared um, to almost all the municipal CEOs, obviously, I'm one of them, that um, they were violating their own make safe protocol to begin doing restoration um, instead of allowing um, people to get out of their houses and off their streets when they had um, when they were unsafe and unable to move around. They were being, you know, they were throwing numbers up on the board, which is what they do. And they were restoring before they finished making safe. They, they didn't have an adequate number of crews here um, to do the job. They underestimated the severity of the storm uh, quite significantly. So we felt we needed to do something. Um, and, um, and uh, you know, we, we actually did a very comprehensive bill that creates a new regulatory framework for the utilities. It's kind of landmark legislation. Um, it was done bipartisan. You saw the vote. I, I worked with uh, Dave Arcante for seven to eight weeks on making sure that we brought everybody into the mix. We listened to everybody. Um, we went on facts and, and the evidence that was at hand and we, uh, empowered Pura to do more and, and regulate the utilities in a very different way than they've been regulated up to now. The key points are performance-based standards. Um, are the end goal here, we had some punitive um, measures in there where if they didn't meet targeted restoration and uh, safety goals, as well as communication goals, there were penalties for outages uh, over 96 hours um, for food and medicine and a credit on your bill for the time you're out after 96 hours. Um, that obviously doesn't uh, work in every storm under every circumstance um, because you could have a category three hurricane and there's no way you could restore in that amount of time. But still, it tightens the framework and it provides penalties that they did not have up to now. Um, we also insisted on... Um, if they do another merger or acquisition in the state of Connecticut, any utility, we want 
appropriate representation on their board of directors because state of Connecticut ratepayers have no representation on the board of directors of um, Eversource or um, for that matter, Ebitrola and um, you know, Challenge UI. We wanna make sure that that's the case going forward. Um, and I, so, yeah. I was so, saying, as you said, this was ultimately in the final passage was overwhelmingly bipartisan. I'm not sure. I'm not sure there were too many votes against it in either chamber. So uh, that was, it was, it, was it was unanimous in the Senate, and I think there were four people who voted against it in the House. Um, mostly, I think people who don't believe climate change is real. Um, so I, I just think that we. We did a great job. We brought everybody along. Um, and uh, and I think that it'll take a while to see the effects of this, but the goal really is one, to regulate the utilities differently, and now um, to begin to attack, how did our rates get so high? What do we need to do to uh, at least hold the line, try to lower them? We put in the bill that we want um, Pura to look at lowering the rates based on the rate increase, not just freeze them, but see if there's a way to lower the rates. We're in a pandemic, people are hurting. The last thing they need is uh, increased utility bills right now. That kind of bipartisanship would be great to see in Washington. Unfortunately, we almost never do. It looks like there might be a Supreme Court that will look at overturning some longstanding precedent. Talk a little bit about what the state can do maybe it has done and should do in the future to ensure that no matter what happens at the Supreme Court level, Connecticut is safe. Well, I believe that we have put in place um, safeguards for the residents of the state of Connecticut. And I wanna make sure that as a, as a legislator, I'm there to make sure that we strengthen, not weaken those. Um, you know, I believe that we're the new firewall and uh, who you elect who runs this state um, is going to really matter in terms of protecting those things that we value in Connecticut. Um, things like uh, marriage equality um, and uh, the rights of the LGBTQ plus community, as well as um, women's reproductive health, which uh, to me is inviolable. These are causes that I've been fighting for for 50 years and um, I'm not new to the game. Um, you know, I have an opponent who doesn't believe that gay rights are the same as civil rights and gay rights are civil rights. People, um, you know, for a party that believes that government should stay out of things, they want to be in your bedroom and they want to control a woman's body. Um, women, women have the right to make their own health decisions. Um, and, uh, that is not, um, that is not a point I'm willing to negotiate. So I will stand up for women um, and all people and their rights um, to, to run their own lives and not have the, the government uh, infringe on that. Um, that's the irony here is that at a federal level, the party that believes that government does too much wants to do more. Um, it's actually very hypocritical and disingenuous, but there's no surprise there. Um, this, this is a cynical attempt to get another Supreme Court justice um, on the court um, right after they said what they said about uh, Barack Obama and Merrick Garland. It's the most hypocritical thing. Um, and, 
And I'm shocked at the Republican Party for not standing up to that and saying, these are the rules. We're going to play by the rules. We're not going to make the rules when it's convenient for us. These are the rules. These are the things we stand for. Um, to me, at the, at the national level, the Republican Party has sold its soul and, um, and they have become the party of the end justify the means. And, um, and it's unacceptable. So Connecticut has to be a firewall. In so many areas, we need to lead. We've always led. We're going to continue to lead. And if reelected, I'm going to be part of that firewall. The host of issues are just incredible from climate change. Uh, you mentioned women's reproductive rights. You mentioned uh, uh, civil rights. Um, uh, just absolutely unbelievable. What, what do you find people talking about as you reach out uh, on the phones or at the doors this time or when you're, you're having meet and greets? What's on voters' minds in 2020? And is it a lot different than 2018, especially because of the pandemic? Well, I think in Connecticut, um, a lot of people feel that Governor Lamont has done a terrific job helping Connecticut. You know, we were in the first wave, Connecticut, New York, New Jersey, Massachusetts, because we're ports of arrival. Um, before we knew what was happening, the virus had spread because it's such an insidious virus. But once we knew, um, the, the citizens of the state of Connecticut um, hunkered down, did the right thing. Uh, the governor made some really, really wise decisions about what to keep open, what to shut down. Um, and, uh, and it allowed us to not have to shut 100% down um, and at the same time, keep people safe. We're clearly at the beginning of a second wave um, as the weather changes. Um, we're still moving ahead with phase three reopenings, but um, uh, we're following the data. And um, the, the Democrats in the state of Connecticut, actually, I think almost everybody in the state of Connecticut, I'm not going to make this one partisan, has looked at the data and said none of these are partisan issues. Socially distancing, wearing masks, making sure that you use sanitizer and wash your hands. These are critical things and save lives. Um, so... That's number one. Uh, clearly, um, Eversource was high on the list um, locally, and everybody that I know, Democrats, Republicans, independents, are absolutely incredulous as to what's going on in the White House and in Washington. To believe that we can have a super spreader event coming out of the White House is unbelievable. Uh, to believe that... Um, uh, President Trump, who gets the best health care in the world, who had every opportunity and every treatment um, possibility thrown at him, including now steroids, which really give you a false sense of security for him to come out and say, I've had it. It's not that bad. Don't let it don't let it change your life is insane. Um, anybody who believes that is putting their lives at risk. We don't know how many people in that group um, a week ago Saturday actually will end up being sick, and we don't know which of them will get critically ill. God willing, none of them. Um, but certainly um, there is a possibility that um, given the, the health issues that some of them have and the age, anything can happen here. Um, it's irresponsible to not use this as a wake-up call and a learning experience. Boris Johnson went through a horrible experience and um, he's been very circumspect about the virus since then. 
Um, you would think that the president of the United States would be circumspect. So I don't know anybody that isn't talking about it. Um, it's on everybody's, you know, it, it's in everybody's head. And um, my job as an elected official, both as a first selectman and as a state senator, is to keep people safe, keep as much of the economy going as possible. I have, um, I have done what I could in my own business um, to keep people working safely, paying them extra money, you know, for uh, what I would call almost combat pay as a reward and a thank you for um, allowing us to stay operating. Um, we, we have done okay. We've had to shut down uh, parts of our business at times, and that can still happen because we're back in uh, spreading, um, you know, th this virus is spreading again. And I, I own one of the manufacturing plants is in Michigan, where there's also um, outbreaks now. So this is the time to be careful and thoughtful and not make mask wearing a partisan issue. This is idiotic, in my opinion. The stakes for this election are as about as high as they've ever been uh, in the 33rd district. You have Norm Needleman as your senator running for re-election the first time. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you, David. Appreciate the time. We now return to Michael Cerulli's interview with Congressman Joe Courtney. Uh, you are the, the chair of the Sea Power and, and Projection Forces Subcommittee on House Armed Services. Um, you know, that's been one of the sectors of the economy that, at least here in Connecticut, has sort of kept chugging along or steaming along, uh, pun intended. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> talk a bit about the work of that uh, subcommittee, particularly its importance to the submarine industry and the general maritime industry here in Connecticut. Sure. So um, ever since my first you know, day in Congress, I, I've been a member of that subcommittee. Uh, again, as you point out, you know, with the largest uh, operating military installation in New England with the Groton mm -hmm. sub-base and then a shipyard that now between Groton and Quonset employs 17,000 people with a huge supply chain um, throughout Connecticut and frankly across the country. Um, you know, it's obviously a very key um, committee and subcommittee. We write the shipbuilding plan, which, uh, you know, is really the um, sort of roadmap for, um, you know, how, how much uh, investment the country is going to make uh, in our undersea fleet. The um, Article 1, Section 8 of the Constitution actually makes it very clear it is mm -hmm. Congress's job to, um, you know, to support and maintain uh, a Navy. And, um, and that subcommittee, if you look at it going back in time, you know, it used to be a freestanding committee of its own, the, the Committee mm -hmm. of Naval Affairs. Again, it was consolidated in 1946 uh, into the House Armed Services Committee. The last time anyone from Connecticut chaired uh, that uh, Navy Oversight Committee was uh, 1872. <laughs> so, um, and uh, he was from Waterbury, believe it or not. <laughs> Interesting. I imagine yeah, they didn't have very, they didn't have uh, Columbia class submarines back then. They or... did not. Yeah. So anyway, I mean, right now, I mean, it's a very, um, you know, busy sort of portfolio because the, um, you know, in the wake of the Cold War, uh, when, you know, the country was building four uh, Los Angeles class subs a year. Uh, obviously, uh, the shipbuilding plan downshifted pretty radically. And, um, mm. and it sort of, uh, in, in my opinion, probably too far down. Uh, you know, when I first came to Congress, we, we sort of restarted the build rate to two uh, Virginias a year. Uh, again, the new Columbia program, which replaces the old Ohio class uh, SSBNs is now, this next year will be the first year of full production. 
That's going to continue into the 2030s. And, um, uh, but, you know, we, we have been really pushing the Trump administration uh, about the fact that the build rate, given, you know, what's happening um, in the Indo-Pacific region with China's uh, right. development of missile technology that makes our surface fleet much more vulnerable, uh, the importance of the submarine fleet is even more um, critical than ever. And the, the combatant commanders who are out there on those in that uh, area, um, Admiral Davidson and his predecessor, um, you know, th that was their adamant message to Congress. And frankly, the Trump administration has, despite all the rhetoric about how they've been <laughs> yeah. so great for, for the Navy, um, they have actually resisted our efforts. And then back in February, they cut a Virginia sub in the budget that came over from Congress. Mm -hmm. So there was only one. Virginia that was in there, which if that were to happen, we would have layoffs. Um, and that's yep. just, you know, the wrong time, particularly as we're trying to build up a younger workforce, since uh, a lot of the baby boomers uh, that have critical skills in metal trades, engineering mm -hmm. and design are, are retiring. So, um, uh, you know, we're now in the middle of a conference process. Again, in the house, I was able to get that sub restored. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and we're negotiating with the Senate, um, who frankly did not go as far and, and um, reasonably optimistic we're going we're gonna to put that sub back in, in, the, um, in the budget and, and we're going to protect the jobs. But even more importantly, we're going to make sure that fleet is adequate to deal with the demand signal that's out there. Yeah. Yeah. So for all the rhetoric about, you know, rebuilding the mil how, you know, President Trump has supposedly yeah. rebuilt the military, uh, in fact, trying to cut in certain in, in the very important areas, too, I think. Yes. Can't, can't underscore enough how important the strategic uh, submarine forces uh, to our national security. Yeah. The, I mean, the, the head of the Navy, Admiral uh, Michael Gilday, is the chief of naval operations. When he mm -hmm. came over to testify at the time the budget came out, I mean, it was very clear the Navy uh, in their submission to the budget office had that submarine in their plan and uh, it got taken out, uh, not with the Navy's um, support and certainly, and Chairman Milley, who's the chairman of the uh, Joint Chiefs, he also said he, mm -hmm. he was, as he put it, not in the room, you know, when that happened. Right. Uh, the Navy listed that as their number one unfunded priority, which, uh, you know, we obviously have been just pounding away with that um, endorsement all the way through this process. Uh, so, um, I was with the Teamsters this morning, which has a local down at the Groton subbase. Uh, the, the Machinist Union just a couple of days ago issued a very strong letter to the conference committee endorsing uh, the House position uh, on shipbuilding. Uh, the Navy League, which is uh, the largest uh, civilian, you know, a lot of retired Navy folks around the country. Uh, they're not just from Connecticut, uh, issued a very strong letter supporting the House position. So, um, you know, again, and be clear, like you said, you know, this is a position that is in opposition to, to what Trump uh, actually sent over to us. And mm -hmm. um, uh, for so many people, that's very counterintuitive because he, you know, just creates this narrative about himself. Yeah. But I yeah. mean, the fact is, it's a false narrative. Mm hmm. Yeah, interesting. And I should say at this point that we do send our best to Chairman Milley, uh, the CNO, and all the Joint Chiefs yes. who are, as I understand, in quarantine right now. Um, yeah, unbelievable. Yeah, unbelievable. Um, you know, it's a very, you know, that's not a good thing to have the top mm -hmm. um, echelon of our uh, national defense, you know, kind of, you know, separate from the Pentagon and, and you know, their, you know, command structure. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, very, very unfortunate. 
Um, finally, uh, uh, we'll, on policy, we could talk a bit. I know you wanted to talk a bit about healthcare and the importance of healthcare uh, to the folks of the second congressional district. Um, talk a bit about the work you've been doing in Congress, and then also the work to be done, uh, hopefully after this election, uh, when we elect uh, more House Democrats, more Senate Democrats, and hopefully a Democratic president and vice president. Sure. So, I mean, since uh, 2010, when President Obama signed the Affordable Care Act into law. Uh, it, frankly, it's been a knockdown, drag out fight with Republican majorities in the House and Senate and mm-hmm. President Trump to protect that law. And um, as everyone recalls, you know, when John McCain went down to the floor of the Senate and gave a thumbs down to the repeal effort, um, right. you know, that that was, uh, again, a real uh, near death experience for people who have pre-existing conditions and, um, you know, uh, uh, you know, needed the Affordable Care Act's protections in terms of lifetime limits, age 26 coverage, um, you know, preventive um, services, etc. You know, the Texas lawsuit against the Affordable Care Act, which incredibly uh, the executive branch is supporting, which is unheard of. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, that's just not, you know, the, you know, the, the job of the executive branch is to right. you know, support legal challenges. Um, is going to be uh, scheduled for November 10th for oral argument before the Supreme Court. Um, without getting into the Coney Barrett, um, the, the bottom line is, is it's very uh, precarious right now. That's why we need a Democratic majority in the Senate and the House and, and Joe Biden in the White House, because, you know, whatever cockamamie, you know, ruling they, they may come up with, you know, we're in a position then to, to really rescue uh, these key patient protections mm-hmm. um, with, uh, you know, either backfilling the law or, um, you know, cleaning up some issues or whatever. And, uh, but frankly, you know, the Biden plan goes far beyond just uh, protecting the Affordable Care Act. I mean, anyone who really uh, looks closely at it, and Paul Krugman in the New York Times wrote an excellent piece on what mm-hmm. he called Biden care. Um, the other day, which, uh, but again, you know, there's going to be price negotiation for prescription drugs, which the House passed HR3, you know, last year um, to put that in place. The number one biggest complaint of everybody, I don't care what party you're in, is the cost of uh, prescription drugs. Again, Mm -hmm. our bill uh, obviously uses the Medicare negotiating authority to get those prices down, but it applies those lower prices to all patients, not just Medicare patients. Uh, as well. The um, subsidies for uh, the um, Affordable Care Act exchange will be increased, so more people will get more help. That's been the biggest complaint uh, from a lot of people, legitimate, that the premiums are too high Mm -hmm. if they fall outside the subsidy uh, levels, and we are going to really, you know, fix that for a lot of people. And lastly, a public option, which, um, again, would be another um, alternative for people when they're um, enrolling in the Affordable Care Act. Uh, if you go back in history, I was there, so I remember in 2009, we actually included a public option when the bill came out of the House and unfortunately got stripped um, right. in the Senate. And, um, you know, the Congressional Budget Office has run the numbers. The premiums will be lower. The, the, frankly, the taxpayer will save money. For, it, it, that's counterintuitive for a lot of people. Yeah. That, that, yeah, that sounds like it's a new government program, but the fact of the matter is you'll be spending less than you are spending today mm-hmm. on subsidized private plans. And, um, you know, and again, obviously, you know, I think we'd have a president who would be totally engaged in terms of uh, the COVID crisis, in terms of uh, getting, cre- you know, key um, help out to, to individuals. So, you know, Biden, I think, is really a president we can really get excited and, and, and you know, behind in terms of, uh, you know, the next step 
in terms of um, healthcare uh, coverage for this country. Mm-hmm. And, um, and as I said, we may really, really need it if the Supreme Court yeah. goes off the rails. Mm-hmm. And, and it strikes me as, you know, you talked a bit about the original passing of the ACA. You know, you were in Congress then. I'm sure you had a bunch of very fun town halls when that was passed. Um, <laughs> to now, is it's an issue, at least I've seen knocking doors in the 4th Congressional District, where it's an issue that people actually, it's a, it's a draw. It's a, it's a vote driver. Yeah. Um, uh, have you had that same experience? Uh, no question about it. Um, and, um, you know, look, it changes hard. And, and when those town halls happen, I mean, I frankly embraced it. You know, you had to go out there and really walk people through it and, um, mm-hmm. you know, live to tell the tale after <laughs> the 2010 election. Yeah. Um, the, um, uh, but as I said, over time, I think, um, you know, first of all, the, the uh, complete um, sham that the Republicans, you know, engaged in by, you know, screaming about repeal Obamacare, for years. And then when the moment of truth came, they, they had nothing. I mean, just yeah, nothing. Right. You know, well, in terms of actually, uh, you know, president's going to release a, a he's been supposedly re- going to release a new health care bill right. uh, in eight weeks for the past two years. Right. <laughs> no, um, for sure. Yeah. And it's just yeah. um, uh, so. So I think people have wised up to that. You know, that's partly about what you're you're hearing out there. Uh, but there's no question that um, there's still dissatisfaction, in, you know, in terms of cost. Yeah. And uh, and and we we you know I'm, I can't you know would be very excited to be part of that process. The Education and Labor Committee and Health and Pension Subcommittee, which I also sit on, will also be you know right there at the front row, in terms of that effort. And uh, and I know Johanna and I who have talked about that. You know she's very excited to be on one of the three health committees um, with Education and Labor. And um, uh, we're ready to go. I mean, it's yeah. it's going to be a very exciting time in January uh, with new majorities and uh, and a new president. That so- sounds outstanding. We're glad to have the two of you down there. So before I let you go here, I do want to touch on your campaign for re-election. Yeah. Uh, it is crunch time. The last, you know, we're inside a month now of Election Day and folks have already started casting ballots here in Connecticut. Um, what's the state of your race and how can folks most importantly help your race out, um, particularly maybe if they happen to be on the University of Connecticut campus here? Sure. So um, as you're experiencing, this is unlike any other campaign, you know, face-to-face contact is very, um, you know, limited and, and you got to be very, you know, socially distanced and it's sort of made things a lot um, kind of trickier uh, that's there. Um, again, if you go back to 2016, the second congressional district was actually President Trump's strongest district. Yeah. And so, um, you know, we are definitely not uh, taking anything uh, for granted. Uh, what I would say to your listeners is, uh, you know, uh, JoeCourtney.com, you know, uh, is our campaign website, and um, you can find out ways to to help. And and you know, we really are trying to connect with Yukon uh, Dems and other folks on the campus there. Um, if you go back to my 83 vote squeaker victory in 2006, <laughs> the Yukon campus can justifiably claim credit for sending me to Congress. And, um, you know, it's a, it's a very important constituency in, in Eastern Connecticut. Uh, again, we, we have materials, we have lawn signs, you know, we uh, obviously are, you know, want to make sure that um, students understand as in past elections that, um, you know, they, they have that option to use their mm-hmm. dorm as a, as a residence and, and register and, and vote. And then uh, obviously we are going to work with the Mansfield Registrar's Office to try and, again, facilitate, um, you know, use of uh, stay-at-home voting, um, you know, which, again, in some ways might even be more convenient for students um, because, 
you know, the biggest complaint that I've always heard over the years, and I share the complaint, is just that there's no on-site polling places uh, mm-hmm. on the campus, which is unlike many other, um, you know, state universities around the country. Um, we've just never been able to get that um, yeah. fixed. And, I, and it's very mm-hmm. frustrating because, I, you know, I, we, I can tell you stories about students who, you know, had class or, you know, mm-hmm. just transportation issues in terms of getting, you know, uh, over to the and then long lines, you know, waiting there. So, um, you know, so in, in many ways, I think that the absentee uh, ballot option for students in many ways might, um, you know, be really uh, a solution and a, and a good uh, process for people. So, again, contact the campaign. Um, you know, we've got some field staff that definitely are, um, you know, uh, working with the Yukon Dems and, um, mm-hmm. uh, and, and, you know, look forward to getting back on campus where we can actually meet in peace in person, you know, to, to talk about, um, you know, if, if we can before the campaign, but certainly after the campaign to talk about issues of uh, healthcare, higher education, um, and uh, you name it. It's like I said, it's going to be an exciting time. Yeah, so we're, we're looking really forward to having you back on campus soon. Grab some dairy bar ice cream and talk about uh, what we can do to uh, make this this uh, state and this country a better place. So uh, you guys heard it there, JoeCourtney.com. Uh, Congressman Joe Courtney represents Connecticut's second congressional district. He's a rock star and a real big advocate for students and young folks in politics. So Congressman Joe Courtney, thank you so much for joining us today, and we wish you the best of luck, and I'll see you out there on the campaign trail. All right. Thanks, Michael. Really enjoyed it, and look forward to seeing you in person soon. So Dave, I know last week we joked about about college Democrats, and I am going to again take credit. Those 86 votes that Joe Courtney won by in his first election almost certainly uh, came from great students at the University of Connecticut. So we're hoping to do it again uh, this year. You know, he's called Landslide Joe because of that election. <laughs> I did you not know, year know that. Year after year, though, year after yeah. year, it, it looks more and more true. So uh, yeah. uh, Joe has uh, definitely been an advocate for Eastern Connecticut in every way, for the farmers, for the uh, uh, military installations, the Coast Guard, and, and of course, uh, Electric Boat, and for the students of UConn. Of course, and that's, of course, uh, where I am right now, so very thankful for him for coming on the show. Thank you to his team for helping set that conversation up. And thanks to Norm Needleman as well for uh, sitting down with us, uh, taking time out of his campaign to talk about being a first electman, being a state senator, and being for the towns of the 33rd District. So Dave, anything else going on with the state party? We've got a lot of things going on. We'll be uh, having a a Zoom uh, event with Senator Dodd. We've got uh, all sorts of uh, events going on. If you just check them out, either on our Facebook page, go to the events tab, you'll see tons of stuff from candidates all over the state. And if you want to get involved as a volunteer, you can reach out directly to those campaigns or there's always ctdems.org slash volunteer. Outstanding. So we'll see you all next week for the next episode of Connecticut's the CT Democrats podcast. Thanks for listening.